is not what I came to talk about because I had a teaching already and as I was flying here, the Lord said, you put that one away and file it. <laughs> so I want to talk about what are we looking at? 43 years ago on Friday, I was in a service in a small town in Saskatchewan, which is the Canadian province where I now live. And I was there along with uh, 17 other people and I was attending a service basically as a skeptic and a critic and someone who was not a believer. I was a priest, but I was not a believer. I was not a born-again Christian. And the preacher spoke from the third letter of John, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And he taught, or did a teaching on the fact that Jesus is alive and Jesus is the healer of your body and your soul today. I did not believe a word that he said. I was a priest, and I was taught that Jesus was not God, and he did not raise bodily, was not bodily raised from the dead, and so therefore I sat there and just took notes so I could correct everything he said on the Sunday morning so my people could be informed of the real truth, the truth that I knew. They had a healing line that night, and because my wife convinced me with her elbow that I should go up and get prayed for, um, I went up and he prayed for me, and that night I received a healing that allowed me to walk properly and to walk without pain for the first time in my life, and I was almost 30 years old. For 30 years, I walked like this, and that night I got healed. A sovereign move of God on a non-believer who was more of a skeptic and a critic than you could ever imagine. And God just sovereignly said, I'm going to change that kid's life. Let's see what we can do here. And he healed me. The next night, I went back 43 years ago yesterday and listening to the same preacher, same town, same community hall, same small numbers, same verse. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. And he talked about how does your soul prosper. And actually he spoke the gospel. And that night I heard the gospel for the first time. I went to church all my life, three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. When I got old enough to go to youth group, I went to church four times a week. In seminary, we went three times a day. As a priest, we did the Lord's Supper every day, and I had nine churches, so I just tooted around and did it all over the countryside. I had never heard the gospel. So that day, he preached the gospel at night. And I thought he was preaching right at me. And he was. <laughs> and God got my attention. And that night, he said this at the end of the teaching. If you will all stand up and close your eyes and bow your heads, tonight Jesus is going to come into this room. There are 18 of us. And he's going to start at the back of the room, and he's going to go from that corner to that corner, and he's going to touch every person in the back row and change their lives forever. And then he's going to move up a row, and he's going to go the other way, move up a row and go this way. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. <clears throat> Healed, but not stupid. It's not going to happen. I closed my eyes and bowed my head, and I heard the rustling of his robes and the flapping of his sandals. And he walked from one side to the other, moved up, went back to the other, just like the preacher said. And then, after a few minutes, the noise stopped, 
And I felt like somebody was staring at me, so I looked up. Because you would too. And I looked up, and right in front of me, in the physical flesh, was Jesus. He stepped forward, and he hugged me. My wife would tell you it lasted about three minutes, and I was not on this world. <laughs> he spoke to me. I've never shared a thing that he said to anybody, and I won't. And he poured in his liquid love. And it started filling me up from the bottom. And he pushed out all that anger, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, everything, right out of the top of my head. That day, I got born again. The anniversary was yesterday. I never forget my anniversaries. When I saw Jesus that night in the flesh, when I heard his voice that night, when he touched me that night, he changed my life forever. I became a new creature in Christ. You know the theology, you know the teaching, you know the Bible. Well, one day this guy, this Pentecostal guy, his wife was a member of my church, but he went to the Pentecostal church. His pastor showed up at the door and knocked on the door of the rectory and passed me one humongous black-covered letter, King James Bible. And here's what he said. I heard you got born again. I thought you might need one of these. <laughs> so I took it, and the only thing I knew was 3 John, verse 2. So I'm smarter than I thought. I thought if there's a 3 John, there's a 2 John, there's a 1 John, I should start at the beginning. So I went back to 1 John, and here's what I read. That which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched concerning the word of life, Jesus, we share it with you. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. I touched Jesus. I thought all believers did that. I thought all believers had that encounter, that experience. And we do, in one way or another, maybe not as dramatic as I did. And I discovered that we need not only to see him once and get born again, but we need to look at him every day. Amen. So I want you to turn to John chapter 12. How many of you have ever had a verse speak to you and you knew it was God saying something? Amen? Well, other than the verse I got saved and healed under, and by the way, three months later, baptized in the Holy Spirit under the same verse. It's a very powerful verse as far as I'm concerned. I began to read the Gospel of John because I got through the three letters fairly quickly. Yeah. And in John chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now these men had traveled from Greece up north into the Jerusalem for the festival that was going on in Jerusalem. They had not personally known Philip. And I don't know if you think through the scriptures when you read it, they didn't know this guy. They had just arrived. Philip's from another place. He's not even from Jerusalem. And so they recognized that this man, Philip, 
knew Jesus. They knew he was, they just knew he was a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And that is so powerful. These strangers looked at another stranger and recognized there was something different about them. Something importantly different about them. And they asked him to take them to Jesus. I don't want you to miss the point. They somehow knew that Philip was one of the men in the crowd, just one, one of a multitude that was in Jerusalem at that point in time, just somehow knew he was a follower, a believer, and that they, if they asked him, he could lead them to the master. So they went up to Philip and basically said this, and I rewrite Bible in my notes. It's obvious that you're one of them, and that you know the master. Would you please take us to Jesus and introduce us to him? That's what they're saying. Okay, so now let's look at us as followers, as believers, as disciples of Jesus. We're called, in fact, more than called, we're challenged to live in a way that those around us who don't know Jesus, don't go to church, have no concept of the goodness of God the Father, we're challenged to live in such a way that those around us who are, they'll look at us and know, and not know how, but they know that we are different. And then that they would come to us and ask us, what is it that's so different about you? How can you be like this? How could you be so happy all the time? And then they're really saying to you, tell us how this happened to you. And really that's saying to you, sir, madam, a you, we would like to see Jesus. Yes. Yes. Philip was so different. We don't know how they noticed and what the difference was, but he was different than all the other people in the crowd, in the multitude. And our call, our challenge as believers is to be so different, to live so differently, that in a crowd we would stand out, not as weird, not as wacko, not as super spiritual or spooky, just stand out as different, yes. good different. So that people will come to us and say, you're different. Of course you're different. When you got born again, God took you out of the domain of darkness and transferred you over into the kingdom of light. It was the first beam me up Scotty in the history of the world. <laughs> when you got born again, you became a new creature in Christ. Behold, all things, old things have passed away and all things have become new or are becoming new because we're in a work in process. We're different. And because we're different on the inside, God dwells inside us. I'm wall-to-wall -wall Holy Spirit inside. My house is wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, but I got wall-to-wall -wall Holy Ghost. We're different. And the world needs to see that difference so that the world will come to us and say, excuse me, could you introduce me to this different? And we know that the different is Jesus. So what are you looking at? Christians, we look in the wrong places for the wrong things. And we see different wrong things and live more like the world than we should. So I discovered that if I will take seriously that I'm a new creature in Christ and live like I'm a believer, and that means a lot of life change for you, for me, 
then people will see that we are more loving, more forgiving. That we don't live in crisis mode like most of the people in the world do where they run from one crisis to another and live from one payday to another. That we are living at peace. We have peace with God, but we have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And so we don't live in a panic. A friend of mine, his wife, is, he and his wife pastor in South Dakota, and she just wrote a book, Peace or Panic, Your Choice. And I thought, good for you, Jeannie. People should be able to come up to you and say, what is it that gives you such hope? Because people live in a world with such hopelessness. And I don't know how you live in this world without Jesus. <laughs> it's tough enough some days with Jesus, amen? So in today's way, people are looking for something, and the something is Jesus, it's not something, it's someone. And they're only gonna see him through us. When my kids were growing up, we had a big picture on the kitchen wall that my wife had painted. She's an artist, and we framed it, and it was huge. I mean, huge. And it was a picture of Thumper from Bambi's movie, the movie Bambi. You know, the little bunny rabbit who had all the friends in the forest? Come on, guys. Else you had the movie, right? And Thumper's sitting on top of this big tree stump, and he's banging his foot and getting attention. That's why he was called Thumper. And then he said this, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. And that was printed on the bottom of the painting. And our children grew up with that, that they were to be different than the other children that they went to school with, because they went to regular public school, and that they were to watch what they spoke and how they spoke it, and that they were to be nice. And you know, people noticed that. In our houses, my kids were growing up, we had kids on drugs sleeping on this sofa, and kids who didn't have any parents because they were alcoholics sitting on that sofa. There was always five or six extras at the meals, and we already had six of our own. I mean, we had big kitchen tables, still do. But because my children only spoke what was nice, people noticed that they were different. My children, when they were growing up, they were taught the laugh principle. I've shared that with you before when I've been here. The laugh principle is an LAF, laugh principle. Here's what it stands for. Love people unconditionally. Accept people just as they are. And forgive people when they hurt you, because they will. Jesus loves you unconditionally. He accepted you and continues to accept you just as you are. And he forgives you every time you need forgiving. What Jesus has done for you, do for those who don't know him. The last principle. And again, that made my children, when they lived by it, different. And so my children led more people to Jesus than I did. Just because their lifestyle, the way they related, their attitude, their actions, spoke that they were different than the people in the world. Think about it. Life tends to beat people up. Amen? Sometimes it even beats us up. And so when you have a life that's without hope, hopeless, when you are empty of meaning, so your life is meaningless, when you're overwhelmed by your circumstances, 
when you're isolated from others because you got so wounded you built walls, when you feel rejected, when your friends have betrayed you and stabbed you in the back, they're looking for something. And because we have encountered the love of God that's found only in Jesus, because we're born again, and because as believers we experience the love of God every day, our life should be such that those people living that way see us living another way. Right. Everybody in my world is wounded. When I, I walk a dog, and I still talk to him even though it's not myth. Um, and I know every dog in the 162 houses on my crescent. I don't know the name of every person, but I know the name of every dog. And dogs open doors, because dogs are cute and they love you, and you know, and so I just talk. And when I'm talking to them, I, I was just thinking on the way down here on the plane. The people I talked to the day before I got on the plane, they felt hopeless, empty, betrayed, wounded, isolated, fearful, angry, and resentful. If you were to summarize how those people in my neighborhood feel, they feel judged, condemned, rejected, and forgotten. Oh, horrendous. If you talk to them, you feel it. You feel what they're feeling. And only a personal encounter with Jesus can change that. A daily experience of his love and his grace can bring peace and meaning and purpose and hope. They need Jesus. Amen? They don't know they need Jesus. They know they need something. They know they need to change, but they don't know that they need Jesus. And they're busy, really busy, looking for something in life that will quiet that inner storm and help them to have something to get out of bed for the next morning. And so you know it, I know it, they'll turn to alcohol, I did, they turned to drugs, I was too afraid to. They turned to work, I changed from an alcoholic to a workaholic. They change, they, they go after food, sex, travel, entertainment. And, Never, nothing solves that issue on the inside. You can travel the whole world, you still feel hopeless. You can take drugs till you blow your mind out, you'd still feel like whatever it is that took you there. So when they see us living differently, and that we have a sense of peace that passes all understanding, they're going to come to us. And they're going to say, one way or another, what is it? How come you're so different, Kathy? Bill, how come you can be so loving and so forgiving and do it every day? And then you get a chance to talk about what Jesus has done in your life. So for that to happen, we need a different attitude than those who don't know him. We need to be warm and gracious. All of our words need to be warm and gracious. We need loving actions. We need to help people. We need to be kind to people. We need an attitude that declares that God is in control, that God is good, and God still knows what he's doing. We need a peacefulness so that when you go near someone, they sense that peace of God that passes on your And they will know it's peace. They will sense it. Not knowing where it comes from, but they will sense it. So I've been analyzing my thoughts, my feelings. We need peace when they're experiencing panic. We need to exhibit trust when others are paralyzed by worry. 
Because that's the difference between trust. If you're not trusting, you're worrying. We need love in place of hate. We need forgiveness when others are seeking revenge. We need to have a noticeable calm in our lives when others live anxious. We need patience when others are getting angry. We need supernatural, real joy when others have in that nagging sadness of life. We need to be content, not discontent. Yes. Which tent do you live in? My mentor taught me that one. <laughs> we need to be humble, but not proud. We need to be loving and not hateful, trusting and not disgusting, because that's the opposite. We need to have a zest and a zeal for life, and not walk around like we're bored with life. We need to be encouraged and not discouraged. We need faith and not despair. Should I keep going? The list gets longer. We need to be so different. Because we have seen Jesus. We have touched Jesus. He's changed our lives. We hear his voice. Because my sheep know my voice, he said in John 10. As believers, we're to live with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That'll make a difference. People need Jesus. And they want to see him through you and me. Maybe. If our lifestyle, our words, our attitudes, and our actions, our reactions, are loving. They need to see your hope, your faith, and your love. I quote the Bible, and the greatest of these is love. The world's crying out for this, folks. And we're the ones that have the answer to what they're crying for. Look around your neighborhood. Look at the person you work with, the black sheep of your family, and I have two black sheep. The clerk behind the counter, your doctor, your family physician, coming through security to get here. In Toronto, we go through American Customs, and I had some little carrots peeled and put in my briefcase, so I, I'm a diabetic, so I could have something to eat and munch on that wasn't bad for me. And I had taken them out of the bag and put them into a uh, Ziploc. And the guy stamping my passport said, do you have anything with you that you want to declare? And I said, no. He said, do you have anything to eat? And I said, yeah, some carrots. He said, well, you have something to declare then. And so we're talking. They were out of the package. I couldn't prove they were grown in America. Maybe they were grown in Mexico. And so they were confiscated. So that meant I went from him to another one, another customs official who then took me through another door and another door into another area where I met another customs official sitting behind the counter who then took my name and my address and everything but my fingerprints because I had 25 little baby carrots in my briefcase. <laughs> You know, and inside of me, I'm getting, like, I had lots of time, so I wasn't worried about missing the flight, but I was missing my coffee. But, no, but inside, I'm going, oh, stupid. Not me, stupid. You, stupid. You know, a bunch of little carrots. Who cares? I'll stand here and eat them now. You know, I don't need to be fingerprinted just because I've got carrots, you know. And I'm boiling. I'm bubbling on the inside, and I can feel it. And I'm 
thinking, this is not a good witness, Ralph, don't do this. And so I am very careful when I'm going through security, you know, thank them, they're doing a job, they're keeping us safe, they're keeping us from blowing up in the sky. And so I just, I had to consciously say, calm down, you're a Christian. And I have to talk to myself, calm down, you're a Christian. You're gonna thank them, you're gonna, and mean it, because they know if you mean it or not. You're not gonna write them off. This isn't an inconvenience, this is their job. It's not a great job and they get many, many bad reactions. Calm down, thank them. You hear what I'm saying? This is not easy. But it is a choice. We went, visited in the hospital and in your hospital system, they have a security system. So you have to empty your pockets, take your jacket off, go through a, a secure alarm system, you know. And I thought afterwards, I bet you nobody ever thanks that guy. He's got a useless job. What a bore. But he's keeping us safe. Especially when your pastor carries a knife. <laughs> and a gun. He didn't have the gun on him, but he has a gun. Like, Come on, we gotta keep us safe, amen? And I bet you, no, and I was mad at myself that after we left, and it was a different guy when we were leaving, we didn't thank either of them. Come on, we're different. We know Jesus. <clears throat> now that's a heavy responsibility. I'm sorry, that's a, like, oh, you mean I gotta be on my best behavior every day, all the time, everywhere with everybody? Yes! And that's a heavy responsibility. So let me teach you in the last five minutes how you go about being like that. So flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. So remember, people are going to come to you and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. I want to know what's different about you. How did you get there? How do you do that? Well, the way you do it is to keep your eyes on Jesus. What are you looking at? Now, you can look at the news and get really depressed really quickly. Or you can look at Jesus and get really filled with hope and joy and peace. And Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1. So, yep. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we've had all these other faithful believers who have died before us and cheering for us up in heaven, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You're the joy that he saw before him, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. So here's what I got out of that verse. Number one, be aware of how you're living and relating to others and let go of any weight or sin. Let go of what's preventing you from changing your lifestyle. If you have sin, it separates you from God. So you're not working by grace, you're not working by His power, you're doing it in the flesh. So get rid of whatever sin it is. Come on, folks. It may be pleasurable today and tomorrow, but eventually it's going to get you. But the weight is anything that prevents you from being real, from being transparent and open with other people. So literally it's saying two things. There are things in your life that are preventing you from moving forward with God, but there are things in your life that are preventing you from being transparent before people 
And if you're not transparent and real, they're not going to see Jesus. The second thing I see in this is that you focus on those things that keep you strong and healthy so that you can run the race, run the race with endurance, run the race to the finish line. You're not trying to beat anybody. You're the only one on this particular race. So anything that you need to be strong, to endure, to keep moving, not to give up, we make some suggestions. The Word of God. Read and study the Bible. I've read it four times a year, every year since I've been saved. I know the story. I know the ending. We won. We don't win. We won. But I still read it because it's alive and it's active and it goes inside and it takes things out that shouldn't be in there and it puts things in that shouldn't, aren't there yet. Develop and deepen your prayer life. Do you know that when you pray, you should hear and see and touch? How do you have a relationship with God if you don't hear, see, and touch? I've been married 44 years and nine months. I count the days. <laughs> and I can see and hear and touch my wife. That's how I have a relationship with her. FaceTime even when I'm away. Right? Well, that's how you have a relationship with God. Develop your prayer life. So that every day you hear the voice of God. You see what God's doing in his kingdom. Jesus said to Nicodemus, if you get not born again, you can't see the kingdom. But if you get born again, you enter it. And you can see what God's doing. And God wants to touch your life, change you. Learn to walk in supernatural peace. You know how I learned that? I had six teenagers at the same time. Living in the same house. I used to have hair. <laughs> Be a person of his presence. Move in the power of the Spirit. Move in the gifts of the Spirit, which come from the baptism of the Spirit. If you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, can't speak in tongues, shame on you. Get prayed for this afternoon. I got those service ends. That's how you would do it. That's how you pick up what's the things you need to be strong in. Bible, prayer, Learning to walk in the peace of God, be a person of his presence, experience the presence of God, and move in the power of God. Third thing I saw in this was we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's how you got saved, right? That's how you should have a daily experience with him. Stay focused on him. What's he saying to you today? What's he doing in your life today? But you have to be intentional. You have to think it through. You have to be still and know that I am God and let him touch you. Learn to be still and listen to that still, small voice. And when you hear his voice, do what he says. And he'll guide you. He'll direct you. You can go past ten people and the ninth one is the one God's going to say, stop and talk to me. That's what God's all about. That's what makes this exciting. If your faith is boring, you're missing something. How can walking with Jesus be boring? Amen? Seek first the kingdom. You know all this, don't you? Right. Do you know something? This is all about him. And not about you, your hours, your needs, your wants, your desires, your plans, your purposes, your dreams. You're supposed to put all those on the altar. It's all about him. This church is all about him. Not about us. And so we need to get our eyes on him again. And I'm sorry, but most Christians and I, you know, we have our eyes on ourselves. 
If you come to my house church three months ago before we corrected it, uh, we, we every night had an organ recital. My bladder leaks, my liver aches, my heart's palpitating. I mean, it was like we were comparing medicines with each other. You know? And one night I just got mad. I mean, mad. I got uh, holy righteousness. And <laughs> I said, you know, guys, I'm so fed up with hearing about your medicines and your pills and how many doctor's appointments you've had. There's more to life than this. I wouldn't invite my pet dog to this meeting. You know, like, this is terrible. We're not talking about Jesus. We're not focused on Jesus. We need to. What are you looking at? I'm sorry, but most Christians, we look at our favorite topic, us. It's all about him. And then the fourth thing, after you keep your eyes on Jesus, is watch how Jesus lived and related to others. Consider him. I've been on a journey reading the four Gospels over and over and over again in different versions so that it doesn't become uh, boring or so knowing that it doesn't jog my brain at all. And I'm watching, how did Jesus treat that person? Why, what? When Jesus said that, was he being miserable or was he being sarcastic or was he being loving or, you know, and I'm watching how he's relating to people, how he talked to people, how he lifted people up. Uh, consider him. What would he do in that situation? How did he feel in that situation? So I think the fourth thing that we need to do out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, is that we need to consider Jesus. Go back to studying the Gospels and how he lived and how he talked and how he related and how he loved and how he forgave and how he accepted people that the world had rejected. Jesus went after the least, the last, and the lost. The least, the last, and the lost. So I'm imitating Christ as best I can. I mean, I know I've got limitations, but I'm trying to be as loving as he is, accepting as he is, forgiving as he is. I'm trying to be humble but bold and courageous, you know. I'm trying to be full of grace and truth. I'm trying to find the balance, because if all you've got is grace, you've got sloppy agape, and if all you've got is truth, you're a legalist. And I'm trying to kind of find the balance in the middle, you know. I'm considering how Jesus does things. And I'm realizing how much of my life needs to change. Both inner life, attitude, and also my outer life, my actions, my words. I want people to come up to me and say, Wow, you're different. I don't understand you. You're weird. What a compliment that would be. <laughs> and they say, How come? What happened to you? Amen? And that's what God wants for all of us. So what are you looking at? Yourself? The world? Your politicians? You can turn TV on and hear that all the time. It's very tiring. Or are you looking at Jesus? You're looking at your circumstances, your situation, or are you looking at Jesus? So there's a mandate on the church, the church Jesus is building. Man has built many a church, but the church that Jesus is building, this church, has a mandate. And that mandate, because it's his church, is to go into all the world and make disciples. You know the verses. But if we'll let go of our way, any weights, any sins, if we'll focus on what keeps us strong 
and healthy spiritually if we keep our eyes on Jesus and we consider him and imitate him then we will fulfill the mandate we will go into all the world and they will see that we're different and they will come to us in one form or another one phrase or another and they're saying sir we would see Jesus Let me read you a story and then we'll end. The story is called The Lighthouse, and I found it 25 years ago in a counseling book, actually. So it's a parable. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was a little crude life saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one little boat. And there was just a few devoted members who kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, this life station, this lighthouse, and it became famous. And some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to be associated with the station and give up their time and their money and their effort for the support of its work. So new boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station, the little lighthouse grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds. They put better furniture in the enlarged buildings. And now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it. They decorated it beautifully. And they furnished it exquisitely. And because they used it as sort of a club, a place to meet each other. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. And the life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations up front, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. And about this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold and wet and half-browned people. They were dirty, and they were sick, and some of them had black skin, and some had yellow skin, and the beautiful club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the clubhouse, where the victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the club members wanted to stop the life-saving club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. And they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in all these waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years went by, 
The new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent, but most of the people drown. We are a life-saving station, and we need to live different than the world. We don't exist for us, we exist for them. And we need to be out there saving and seeking the lost, the least, the last. And our job is done when there's no one left who isn't saved. Otherwise, people are going to get up, go down the street, start another church. Amen? A church that will do what God called us to do. Keep your eyes on Jesus. We're going to get the worship team to come back up. There's a song that I sang when I got saved. Um, I still cry through it. <laughs> Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And that's my message. We've got our eyes in the wrong place. And so when the world looks at us, they don't often see the real Jesus. They see a religious Jesus, but not the real Jesus. And we need to put our eyes back where it belongs and keep them there while we run our race. Amen? So I'm going to get you to stand with me, and if Tim feels, if the worship team feels that this is going to move and we get a, the anointing begins to move, he's just going to keep it going. <laughs>